1: This is an RNZ Podcast.
2: I like our changing world.
1: Na mihi Nui and welcome to our changing world, Core Allison Balance ho. Later on, we meet the chemical element radium. But first up. Technology expert Peter Griffin is in search of immortality. Or is he?
3: This problem, the problem of ageing, kills 100,000 people every day. That's roughly two-thirds of all deaths. That's quite bad. (laughs) That's Aubrey de Grey, the British scientist working to try and reverse the ageing process. de Grey estimates that if you're a middle-aged today you have a 50-50 chance of making it to what he and others in the life extension movement call longevity, escape, velocity. That's the point at which your life expectancy increases faster than the time that is passing. A year goes by, and the technological improvements give you, say, two or three years of additional life expectancy. The scientific progress accelerates to a point where if you are maybe 70 or 80, you can be rejuvenated back to the health of a 30 or 40-year-old. So your risk of dying never depends on how old you are. De Grey thinks that when humans reach this point, they could live for a thousand years or longer. How does he propose getting us there? He compares ageing to a car wearing down due to damage. Eventually it will break down completely if it isn't repaired. If we can avoid that in the body by repairing our biology at a molecular and cellular level, maybe we can slow or prevent the physical decline that comes with ageing. It's a bold idea that has captured the minds of some Silicon Valley billionaires, such as Peter Thiel, who in 2011 became a New Zealand citizen. The big theme that I think we could be spending more on is solving the question of aging. Is can we treat aging itself like a disease that can be uh, slowed or possibly reversed? And, um, And I think we've not even scratched the surface in asking questions about it. I think most of us deal with aging, deal with death, through a combination of acceptance and denial. It's going to happen to us, nothing we can do about it. Denial, it's going to happen to other people, it's never going to happen to me. Uh, And this sort of schizophrenic attitude, uh, I think, uh, is sort of very enervating. And uh, instead of acceptance or denial, I think we should be fighting it. The problem is that despite progress with stem cells and new gene editing tools, and the billions that Thiel and others in Silicon Valley can throw at this, we are several breakthroughs away from gaining immortality. That's why some futurists such as the inventor Ray Kurzweil see digital technology getting us there faster. What if we just download our consciousness into computers and live virtually or in the silicon brains of robot bodies? Now we can actually seriously talk about a
0: scenario
2: where we will be able to extend our longevity indefinitely. Uh, We're going to get to a point 10, 15 years from now where we're adding more time than is going by to our remaining life expectancy. We're going to be able to overcome disease and aging. Most of our thinking will be non-biological, that'll be backed up. So if part of it gets wiped away you can recreate it and we'll be able to extend our lives indefinitely. I'd rather use that word than forever.
3: Kurzweil and de Grey plan to have their bodies cryogenically preserved basically put in the deep freeze when they die and hope that they'll one day be able to be reanimated when the technology is available to do so. But what does this all mean for us as human beings? What happens when a small number of super wealthy, the immortal one percenters, get to live forever because they can afford life-extending treatments? What is human existence when your consciousness exists only on a computer server? To find out, I went to Christchurch to talk to a social scientist who's been thinking about exactly these issues.
0: My name is Amy Fletcher, and I'm an associate professor of political science and international relations at the University of Canterbury. And my specialist area is science, technology and environmental policy.
3: Amy, you've been looking at the effort in Silicon Valley to sort of reverse engineer the aging process, Mm -hmm. see how it works in the aim that they can make us live longer. What got you interested in this?
0: Well, biotechnology policy and biomedicine is my key specialist area within science and technology, and i just finished up a long-term research project on de-extinction. So when you look at the questions around or the controversies around bringing back, say, a woolly mammoth, you almost invariably get into questions about what is the boundary between life and death does that have any implications for human health so even though they're two separate research areas there's some conceptual and technological overlap that i find quite interesting
3: because we've seen some of the biggest names in silicon valley elon musk the, the founder of tesla we've seen peter Thiel, who's a, a new zealand citizen who founded paypal as a billionaire has lots of money to put into this google with calico uh, its subsidiary working on this sort of technology What's the motivation in putting all of this money from Silicon Valley into these sorts of technologies?
0: I think there's probably several motivations. I mean, part of it, of course, is that if you could find the cure for aging, you would probably make an extreme amount of money. That would be a very popular product. I also think, though, that that generation of Silicon Valley billionaires, they are hitting middle age, maybe a little bit older, And they're very used to a great deal of success in the things they try to accomplish. So they bring that same engineering mindset, that notion that if we just think about the problem long enough, we can solve it. And if we put money and smart people on the problem, we can cure aging. So I think it comes out of a particular optimism around the possibilities of technology.
3: Ultimately, this is going to be treatment for the wealthy, at least initially, isn't it? If they can even pull it off.
0: Probably. I mean, like all technologies on the private market, it would likely roll out to the wealthiest first. The hope would be that you could scale that up and mass market it and make it more of a traditional consumer product. But you're right. I mean, the benefits won't accrue to everyone should it happen. You know, they'll accrue to people at different levels economically.
3: You have the people like um, Peter Thiel and the futurist Ray Kurzweil who who very much wants to prolong his life now, be as healthy as he can in the hope that he will be around when these technologies exist. But the reality is that when these technologies do exist, at least in the early years, there's going to be huge inequality, isn't there? There's going to be people who can afford it. There's going to be billions of people who can't afford it and have more traditional treatments. But is there, do you think, an altruistic sort of aim in in all of this? The likes of Mark Zuckerberg talked with Facebook about connecting the world. He wants everyone to be connected to information on the Internet. That's why he's given away um, cell phones in Africa, for
0: instance. Is there an element of that, do you think? I think it's easy to get a bit cynical about Silicon Valley. And certainly you can't be naive about Silicon Valley. They definitely are looking for that next big disruptive breakthrough and there are people who have risked a lot of money and want to see a return on that investment through anti-aging or life extension. But again, if you stand back from that, I would expect there are people who sincerely think that if not necessarily conquering death, then contributing to healthier, longer lifespans is actually a contribution to make to society. So I'm sure, as with all things in Silicon Valley, it is a mixture of big aspirations, big profit potential, and then probably some people who genuinely think they would be helping the world.
3: So what do we know about the main areas of fundamental research that's going on? I've heard about the so-called young blood uh, (laughs) science that's been parodied a little bit,
0: um, but some people are taking that seriously. What do we know about that one? Well, we know in the States that the FDA started paying very close attention to that one. So that's not just this moment. That's always been part of the human condition. You have to be very careful in this space to distinguish between the hype, what is possible, and what might be probable but is way out on the technological frontier. So in that particular case, the mismarketing of that to vulnerable people, the potential for blood-transmitted diseases if regulatory protocols were not filed there were a lot of different reasons that the FDA started paying attention to that one and said it veered a bit more as an industry at this point in time into hype rather than a real medical procedure that could do some good
3: we're also seeing work at the cellular level so-called telomeres the, the little pointy bits on the end of our cells that reduce in size over time is there any promising work happening there
0: that work has been visible for quite some time via TED Talks and the like. And again, it's quite promising, but I think one of the things that's potentially problematic is that in today's world, a lot of preliminary scientific findings are reported. And I don't mean that to blame anyone, but you've got the scientists who want their work to be visible, you've got the media who are interested in important stories you've got the investors who want to hype the product so in the case of telomeres there was some very interesting findings about how that affects aging and the relationship between ongoing stress shortened telomeres and aging. But usually with biotechnology, it's a lot harder to get to a scalable product that you can actually take to market in a safe way. So we're still very far from any kind of applicable breakthrough, would be my understanding of where the science is right now.
3: And that's probably applicable also for the gene therapies. We've heard a lot about this. We've got gene editing technology very advanced now. What are you seeing in that space? I know people like George Church and um, some of the people involved in the Human Genome Project, Craig Venter, people like that are interested in this area.
0: It is fascinating that the ability, you know, sort of our collective ability to manipulate genomes has increased exponentially in a very short amount of time. So CRISPR, as a breakthrough, I speak as a social scientist, but as a breakthrough, CRISPR is more efficient, less expensive, and it lets people who know what they're doing edit genes in a very effective, controllable way. But as with all things biotech, it always ends up more complicated than you potentially anticipate. So we know we had the case in China where a doctor went ahead and used CRISPR to modify a human embryo to reduce its vulnerability to HIV. But we're already seeing in that case, which caused major ethical controversies around the world, you can improve one area, but then that can potentially have a cascading effect that can cause illness or disease or problems in other areas. So we're such a complex organism that these things do show great promise. We're much farther along than we were, say, in 1953. But it always ends up being more complicated and a much longer road than usually we're told when these stories first
3: break. So the fundamental stuff, yes, we're probably a short way into a quite a long journey to achieve some of these. But there are things now that doctors are prescribing, things like, you know, fasting regimes, um, drugs and diet control to try and prolong your life. And some of this has proven to be relatively effective. But what are you seeing in the stuff that's happening now? Is there a really good evidence base underpinning some of it?
0: There are people that are using exercise massive vitamin supplements, fasting. So you're right. There are a group of people who are pursuing these things, and they may have an effect over time. What I'm interested in, coming at it from the ethical and cultural perspective, is that even in order to do a proper fasting diet, You do have to have a fairly organized life. You have to have a certain access to, you know, you can time it. You can control when certain things are happening. It's sort of like the Fitbit phenomenon where you keep such rigid, you know, records about the exercise you're doing and your pulse rate and all of those things. It's not that those are not potentially hopeful things to do, but I think the question is can most people with a normal kind of very jam-packed life with a job and kids and bills to pay and just all the things that stress people out in our modern world, can they actually harness those regimes over the long haul? I think that's very hard for most people to do.
3: Yeah, how realistic uh, is that for people living a a modern life and then the billions of people who just realistically can't live that lifestyle, exactly. they're, they're, they're not getting the right nutrition day to day anyway. And so there is that issue I guess we'll have to grapple with as this becomes more realistic scientifically is what are the implications for society in general here? It's, it's going to throw up some really philosophical questions about what it is to be, to be old, to be middle-aged forever potentially if you're living to 150 or, or longer. How is it going to change our perception you think of what it's like to live?
0: I think that's where it gets very interesting because science is important and there's some very talented people working on these questions where I really think it starts to matter in a sense is how it's going to affect individuals, their families, their communities, and the larger society. So on the one hand, as long as nobody's made worse off, we already accept variation, socioeconomic variation in terms of health, in terms of average lifespan, and a host of other things. So one group being better off, you could potentially argue, as long as nobody's made worse off. But that's where it gets complicated. Because if certain people are living, say, let's say double the average lifespan, let's say to 150, becomes feasible. Well, that is such a, would be such a massive extension It would require much longer work spans. It would require much longer access to retirement funding. We'd have to deal with the question of ageism. We'd have to look at the education system. We'd have to look at, you know, staggered careers and people changing careers. So you're right. I mean, even if it stays in the realm of the hypothetical If we even manage to push healthy aging out to, say, 110 or 120, for a relatively large number of people, it has cascading effects all through the economic and the social system.
3: Yeah, and look, by 2100, uh, the UN predicts we'll have 11.2 billion people on the planet. If maybe a billion of the lucky ones are living to 200 or or longer, what's that going to mean literally for the sustainability of the planet?
0: Exactly. You've got the question of if someone's living double the normal lifespan, particularly if they come from a wealthy country where the climate footprint is already high, is it fair in a certain collective sense for that person to get to double? We you know how you're going to have to change people's behavior, and it could end up you know, maybe a perhaps dystopian scenario, that the same technological progressivism, the technological freedom that causes us to push these boundaries, well, we could end up in a situation where we then have to look seriously at limiting the number of children that some people could have. While this is hypothetical, and while the science is in a really interesting, you know, degrees of how much into the future we're talking about, There are some important questions that we need to be thinking about now. I think even if we leave the radical age extension and the immortality questions to the side, if we do manage to reach a healthy 90 on average or a healthy 110 or even a healthy 120, that would have massive effects and implications for the economy, for society, for retirement, for families. And that's where I think the questions get very interesting.
3: Now, there's another sort of fork-off research very much in vogue in Silicon Valley at the moment, less focused on the biological science and more on what they call the human brain Uh, computer interface. So people like Ray Kurzweil suggest that maybe the future solution is to upload our consciousness into computers so that we can live forever.
0: What sort of questions does that throw up for you? Coming at it from a social scientist, I'm interested in the fact the question's even being asked. To truly answer that question, we need philosophers, we need neuroscientists, we need theologians. What I do know is, yes, that's a very prominent strand that somehow we'll be able to create a sort of digital immortality where the most important part of you can be uploaded to a robot, to a computer. But I know from having given talks in this area that even to broach that topic is where audiences often start to get quite contentious because people have very strong views on whether that is possible or is not possible and the degree to which some of that Silicon Valley digital uploading might be a modern version of snake oil the prospect of it is very exciting to some to others it's such an impossibility that really, it's just at the level of science fiction. So it might be fun to talk about, but it can't really come into this debate. So that's just an open-ended question within science and within philosophy as well.
3: Would you love to live to 150 yourself?
0: I'm a bit odd in that anecdotally, whenever I've asked that question of classes or community groups, most people want A healthy 85 to 100, which I find quite interesting because most of the people in Silicon Valley pushing this want to go for the radical. If I could live to 120 based on where I am right now, this salary, this health, the people around me I care about, a job that I love, a community I'm connected to, yes, I would love it. I'd like a good 120.
1: Thanks, Amy. That was Amy Fletcher from the University of Canterbury and that story was produced by technology expert Peter Griffin. Kaita te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou i I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time for a dash of chemistry with the Elemental Podcast. As we wind our alphabetical way through the periodic table, we have made it to the letter R – and the chemical element radium. Here's Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of
2: Technology to tell us all about it. Radium, from the French word radium, (laughs) formed in modern Latin from radius, meaning ray. As in a ray of sunshine? Well, not quite. It's actually in recognition of radium's power of emitting energy in the form of rays.
1: Details, please.
2: Okay, so vital statistics, elemental symbol RA, and uh, a whole lot of 8s. So atomic number 88, and it was discovered in 1898. So we have already discussed radium very, very briefly in the Curium episode, as it was originally isolated by Marie and Pierre Curie. More recently, we've also touched upon it in the Polonium episode for the same reason. Despite the fact that it is extremely rare, it is an element that many have heard of owing to the Herculean efforts made by the Curies to isolate it. So I guess let's have a little history lesson and go back to uh, the time where they were working with this, and that was 1896, and... Just consider for a moment that radioactivity was only discovered that year; it was brand new. So, the Curies were like many of the people we've talked about—in exactly the right place at the right time—to make an earth-shattering discovery. Well, they made several, actually, didn't they? Oh, they, yes, they did, indeed. But I guess radium is easily the most famous of them. This is the one. This is one element that everybody knows about. So. Let's have a look at radioactivity itself. And it was discovered by uh, Becquerel in 1896. The way he discovered it was he took a uranium salt and he put it on an undeveloped photographic plate, which was all wrapped up in uh, dark paper and stored in a drawer. And he found that the plate actually darkened, despite the fact that it was uh, in the dark the whole time. And so he postulated that obviously something was going on there. It was giving out some sort of rays. And as a result of uh, Becquerel's work, then the Curies started working on pitch blend, and that's a uranium mineral now we call uh, uraninite, and that consists primarily of two uranium oxides, uh, uranium dioxide UO2, and a small amount of U3O8. And what they found was that radiation emanating from this material. The pitch blend was in fact greater than could be accounted for on the basis of uranium being the only radioactive element present in the pitch blend. And so that led them to, I guess, literally go digging in the pitch blend to find out what else was in there. And as we now know, it was both radium and polonium that were in there. This took them sort of a couple of years of work to identify radium, and they got there in 1898. And then they started going on the big scale and they processed literally tons of pitch blend to end up with, in the year 1902, exactly 0.129 grams of a mixture of barium and radium chloride in which around one atom in a thousand was radium. So they'd finished that and this whole discovery formed the basis of Marie's PhD thesis which was submitted the following year in 1903. Needless to say, I guess, because radioactivity was a new phenomenon, its dangers were not at all well known. And um, so people were getting and studying the stuff and doing things that we wouldn't dream of doing today with with no radioactive protection at all. And indeed, Pierre once uh, wrapped a sample of radium salts to his arm for 10 hours and then studied the resulting radiation burn. Ah. (laughs) I know. And after day 52, a permanent grey scar remained. What he took from this experiment was that radium might be used in cancer treatment. Didn't um, occur to him it might cause cancer? <laughs> it didn't occur to him that it was slowly killing him, very probably, unfortunately. So when Pierre met his untimely end on a Paris street, as we've already talked about it, he got run over by a horse carriage. It was thought that he was very, very ill with radiation poisoning at the time.
1: So what sort of uses have we actually put radium to?
2: That's the interesting thing, because when it was first discovered, it was put to an absolute myriad of uses, as, as we will talk about. So the first and most obvious thing is that radium salts have this wonderful capacity to glow in the dark. And so instantly, radium salts were used in luminous clock and watch faces, and um, the workers in the factories that made these used to paint the radium on the dials by hand. And not too surprisingly, many of these workers came down with radiation poisoning. And the most infamous examples uh, were the radium girls. And they were encouraged to point the brushes with their lips to stop them going out of shape. Uh, They were told to lip, dip and paint the radium on these dials. So, not surprisingly, a lot of them started getting sick and some dying workers sued their employer in 1927 and won. Like all court cases, uh, it was appealed a total of eight times, and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they actually did refuse to hear it, uh, but that took 10 years to get there. And sadly, radium was still being used on luminous watch dials until the late 1960s, the only difference being that the workers were told not to lick their paintbrushes. (laughs) God help us. And then radium was replaced by promethium, uh, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, and then still later by tritium.
1: For a while, radium was promoted as having life-giving properties, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. All these mysterious rays were thought to be good for you. So uh, because of that, radium was added to things like water or coffee or beer, most disturbingly face creams, um, before it was finally figured out that it was bad for you. And this is an absolute tragedy. A very famous case of radium poisoning was that of a guy by the name of Aben Bayers, and he was a U.S. steel magnate. Uh, he believed in radium so much that he drank radium-infused water every day for around four years, and not surprisingly, he ended up with cancer of the jaw and very, very bad radiation sickness, and that ended up sadly killing him. What makes radium so poisonous to us? Well, it's very, very dangerous because of its position on the periodic table. It is in group two of the periodic table. It's a metal. And another element that appears in group two is calcium. And uh, hopefully, as listeners know by now, uh, elements that appear in the same group have similar chemical properties. And so, therefore, to the body, a radium atom does look a little bit like a calcium atom. And so, therefore, if you do ingest radium, it will localize in the bones... It'll stay there, and then its radioactivity will do you nasties.
1: Well, thank goodness we're no longer sipping or soaking in radium water. Uh, Do we actually have any safer uses for it these days?
2: (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing. It is a really, really famous element, but it is rather devoid of uses these days.
1: It'll never not be a famous element, though, will it? (laughs) Hey, interesting fact. Please...
2: Okay, so the old non-SI unit of radioactivity was a thing called the Curie, and that was defined as the amount of radioactive material that had the same decay rate as one gram of the radium isotope radium-226, and that is, in fact, 3.7 times 10 to the power of 10 disintegrations per second. That's 37 billion disintegrations per second. And that really does sound like a huge number. Like that's, you know, that's 37 billion. But let's put this into perspective by the fact that if we take that one gram of radium-226 and wait for it to decay completely, that's in fact going to take 16,000 years decaying at a rate of 37 billion disintegrations per second. And the reason why it's going to take 16,000 years is that in that one gram of radium, we have got around about 2.66 times 10 to the power of 21 atoms.
1: Wow. Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology juggling enormous numbers with consummate ease in the Elemental podcast. And you can find all the episodes of Elemental and all our other stories on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World, or find us on your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch, and we do love hearing from you, we are on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, kia pai tōpō.